This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat. Denmark, which you may know as the home of Hans Christian Andersen and Lego Toys, has been voted the happiest country in the world for 40 consecutive years, most recently in the 2016 World Happiness Report. In that same report, our country, the United States, which has the pursuit of happiness built into the Declaration of Independence, we aren't even in the top 10. Barely in the top 20, we're, we're right after Mexico. So what is the secret to their consistent success? Can happiness become the new Danish export? Some experts attribute this happiness to their upbringing. Happy kids grow up to make happy adults, who then raise happy kids who grow up to be happy adults, and on and on and on. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with one of those experts, and she happens to be an American mother who's married into the Danish culture. Now, her co-author on a really interesting book that we're going to be discussing is a Danish family psychotherapist, and together the two of them have figured out what exactly it is that Danish parents are doing with their Danish kids that makes them so darn happy. More important than that, though, they're going to tell us what we can do in our own homes to replicate those results. I'm Armin Brott. We'll start talking about what we can learn from the happiest people on Earth when Positive Parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. everyone did this weekend. Jill? Well, I raised my older sister to a big oak tree. It was at least a hundred years old. My mom said I must have set a record or something. And then we went down by a stream and perched up on this huge rock and saw all of these little minnows swimming around way below us. And then I rescued my little brother from an evil smog king who was guarding him at the bush fortress. And my sister and I brought him back to our super twig fort for safety. And then we all laid out and told stories until it got dark. And the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? Yeah. We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Anyone want to come this weekend? (laughs) Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week and find the fun, adventurous you. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brock. And my guest for this part of today's show is Jessica Joel Alexander, who's the co-author of The Danish Way of Parenting, What the Happiest People in the World Know About Raising Confident, Capable Kids. Jessica, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So tell us how it is that, that you, an American, happen to stumble into the happiest place on earth. <laughs> okay, well, um, I've been married to a Dane for 15 years. We met 17 years ago. And um, we have two children now, but when we first met, I guess it all started, we went to Denmark, and I noticed immediately how well-behaved and calm.
calm and serene the kids were. And it really blew me away because I wasn't really a maternal person, so um, this this whole concept of these very happy children was, was really interesting to me. And I remember saying to my husband at the time, um, if I could get a guarantee that I have a Danish child, I was ready to sign up for motherhood. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and um, so fast forward eight years later, and I was pregnant with my daughter, and I was put on bed rest for about five months, and I read mountains of parenting books. But what I found was when she was born, I really preferred my Danish family and friends' advice to the books. And this eventually I stopped going to the books because I really preferred everything, all of their advice. Um, and then when I, when I learned some years later that they were the happiest people in the world for 40 years in a row, and I saw how different the parenting was, I just realized that must be one of the main reasons why they're so happy. Well, give us an example of a, something, a situation where you had a choice between book advice and friend and, f- and f- uh, family advice. Um, okay, well, you know, free play is a really big thing in Denmark. So um, for, for it's, we're starting to talk about it now, the importance of play. But in Denmark, it's like crucial. It's not optional in a child's life. So I, in my American parenting style, I was very sort of into wanting to enroll my kids in a lot of activities and overdevelop them and stuff. And Danes, they don't like to overprogram their kids' lives because they feel like kids should feel good also when they're not performing. So I would say I, like I would dial down this need to over-enroll them. And also another you know, interesting example is so Danes use this no ultimatum style of parenting, which means it's a very respect-based parenting practice rather than uh, like fear-based. And I came from a really strict family, so I was kind of obsessed with, you know, how are we going to discipline? And what I found out was in Denmark, spanking, for example, has been illegal for over 20 years. And for them, you know, this idea of 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 ruling with with fear is just crazy. So I had to learn this new parenting style, which is very in line with positive parenting, I think. Um, so those are a couple of examples. So how do you do? I mean, we're going to get to this later on because you mentioned uh, no no ultimatums. That's the N in parent, mm-hmm. which is the acronym that you're using to mm-hmm. kind of help lay out this thing. So we're, well, we just want to talk a little bit about that. It's out of order, but uh, we'll try it anyway. Uh, but h- how do you get kids to do something that they aren't doing or stop doing something that they are if they shouldn't be doing it or should be doing it? Well, again, you know, I think uh, a lot of us uh, in America, we were, we were raised with this um, ultimatum-style parenting. So it's, it's, it's kind of a cultural thing. And a lot of us don't realize that our language is, is inherited. So we don't have a lot of options in our mental toolbox when we get pushed to our limits. But when we immediately go into these power struggles where we say, if you don't do that, I'll, you know, it's, a, it's an I win, you lose. And what happens is it's often the parents that lose because we lose closeness because the kids get afraid and we don't know if they understand the rule because they understand it or they are afraid. We lose respect because oftentimes we can't follow through with the, with the threats and so they don't see boundaries as being that serious. And we lose, we lose perspective on the big lines of parenting because we can get bogged down in these little battles. So they would use empathy a lot more, trying to understand 
you know, how the child's feeling, letting them express their feelings, a lot of explaining. So they explain the rules a lot, even when kids can't even speak, because they really want their kids to understand what a rule is and incorporate it because they, they understand it, not because they're afraid of it. So it's not like, you know, it's not a, a, a be-all rule book that gives you the perfect output all the time. It's more a philosophy that, that builds your children, to, that they have respect for you, not because they fear you. And this has a huge knock-on effect in the teen years. Wow. I, mean, I guess it's, uh, being an American and having been raised here, it's hard to completely grasp this idea. Uh, so yeah, it's, it, but it, it's what's, what's amazing is they're the most well-behaved kids I've ever seen, and yet this is how they're being raised. So it's, it's working. <laughs> okay, so I, I actually want to talk about the next one, the T in parent, and mm-hmm. we'll come back and do mm-hmm. the, go to the, some of the other ones, which is a concept that's based on, it's called, uh, pronounced huga, is that right? Mm-hmm, very but good. It's, but it's spelled completely differently. You would mm-hmm. not recognize, H-Y-G-G-E. No, right. Uh, you're using the uh, American alphabet anyway. So talk about what that is. Okay, so huga is a really um, interesting topic. It's very, very Danish. Um, Danes grew up doing this. It's completely part of their culture. It's difficult to have a conversation where they don't talk about huga. And what it actually is, is cozy times with people you love. So it took me a lot of years to finally understand what it was. Um, And the way I describe it is like this. So imagine you're going into a psychological space with, with your family. And when you get to the door, you all agree to leave, like you're taking off your coat and your shoes. You leave your complaining, your work issues, gossip, bragging, political discussions, judgment, anything that would make other people put their guard up, you leave for this period of time that you're going to be together. So it's like a safe psychological space with your family that you can spend together for a period of time and it's, it's incredibly recharging because it allows you to connect with the ones you love without any drama. And it seems like a really simple thing, but when you agree to do it, it makes, it makes a huge impact, and especially on kids. that They're the ones that benefit the most because they love this drama-free time with family. Um, you know what mindfulness is? Oh, sure. That's the big okay, thing so here these days. Right, right, right. So mindfulness is like this big new topic, and... The way I describe huga is weefulness. So it's this it's it's setting aside time where you have a safe psychological space to be with your family. It can be for a barbecue, it can be for a dinner. The important thing is you agree and when you know it's time limited, it's much easier to focus on we time rather than me time. And it's it's I've done it with my family. We get a lot of mail from people that are trying it and it's really powerful. All right. So how do you set something like that up? I mean, is it on the calendar that every Tuesday from 3 to 4, 3.45, we're going to be doing <laughs> okay. this? Or? Right. So um, on our site, thedanishway.com, you can find the Huga Oath, which is a really simple explanation. It's also in the book. It's a really simple explanation of what Huga is and some simple rules. So like, like I said, Danes grow up doing this. So they don't even have to think about it. They know. See, for a long time, I couldn't understand how are they having these drama-free get-togethers. Um, but it's, it's, it's understood. So you can, have, you can look at this and then just talk about it. And like with my family, we, we sort of set aside a barbecue. And for that time, we were just together. You can play games. You can play cards. You, 
You can talk about good memories, anything that's not, you know, makes you put your guard up. Mm -hmm. And how long does it last? You decide. So for us, we would do it for, for you know, a barbecue because it's not, you know, you're, you can still complain and talk about your problems, <laughs> but you just do it other times, not in that space. Because, we, we, you know, sometimes we get into a habit where we get into these negative spirals or, you know, you're in a big debate about something or complaining about a family member, and that's not hugely. That, does, that doesn't allow you to connect. So, like I said, it's, it's, it sounds kind of simple, but... And it feels a little weird at first. Like with my family, it was a little weird because we weren't used to not going into these kinds of heavy topics. Um, but it, it really feels good. But it's not, it's not an everyday kind of a thing, no, is it? No, 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 no. You can decide. Like I said, if you're feeling really brave, try for Thanksgiving. Um, <laughs> imagine. <laughs> um, yeah, that um, one, that's going to be tough to get going. No, because yeah. everybody's supposed to help out, right? That's the other thing. That's the other part of Huga is that because it's such a team effort, Everybody agrees to sort of help out so that nobody gets stuck doing all the work. Um, but like I said, you can try it once a week. You can try it once a month. You can try it for a holiday. I mean, Danes do it pretty regularly. And I think the better you get at it, the more you enjoy it. Like I, With my family, for example, now I'm finding that we're doing it more and more frequently because it feels good. And my kids love it. They like it. They, they stay so close to us because it's, it, it feels good. Talking with Jessica Joel Alexander, who's the co-author of The Danish Way of Parenting, What the Happiest People in the World Know About Raising Confident, Capable Kids. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Jessica. McGruff the Crime Dog here. Let's hear from an identity thief. Identities are easy to catch online. I send people an official-looking email pretending to be their bank or credit card company and ask them to confirm their personal information. Looks them every time. Safeguard your personal information on the phone, online, and especially at home because half of identity theft occurs by someone you think you know. Keep your identity to yourself and take a bite out of crime. Learn more from the National Crime Prevention Council at ncpc.org. A message from this station, the U.S. Department of Justice, Crime Prevention Coalition of America, and the National Crime Prevention Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If it's just joining us, talking with Jessica Joel Alexander, who's the author of The Danish Way of Parenting, What the Happiest People in the World Know About Raising confident, capable kids. So we talked about thinking of the, the letters that make up the word parent, P-A-R-E-N-T. Mm -hmm. So we talked about N and T, and want to go back up to the top to P for play. And you talked about that briefly, that, that that's such an important part of the Danish culture. I mean, they are actually the... And I'm, I'm curi curious about uh, Lego and how that fits into the whole thing. Well, Lego is really interesting. A lot of people don't know. Lego is a Danish brand. Right. And uh, or maybe they do know. I don't know. <laughs> um, and what it actually is, the, the the word Lego comes from the two words in Danish, which is laigot, which means play well, put together. And th this, when Lego was invented, it was it was precisely from this idea that play was so important. And and even today, you know, you see Lego is an example where. There is not, it's not a defined kind of play. Children can really just be free with it and have fun with it. And since 1871 in Denmark, play has been seen as an educational theory. 
so they really believe that play is serious learning for kids. And we're seeing that more and more now in America. There's a lot of research coming out. All the things that kids are learning in play, which are really fundamental skills. Sure. But I think because we can't measure it, and we can't get it, you know, we like to measure things in America to prove that it's working. It's really difficult to measure play. And so but what I think is the most compelling argument is if you look at this country for 40 years, has it voted as one of the happiest peoples in the world this year they're number one and they have had play implemented in their culture since 1871 that's pretty powerful yeah well i'm curious about going back to lego itself for just a minute I, whether you've noticed this in i remember when i was a kid playing with lego and you'd get a bag or a box of them and they would just be a bunch of blocks different colors mm -hmm. and now i mean oh, since my kids have been kids there are all these kits that you get that build a specific spaceship or a particular right. character or right. something from right. Star Wars or Batman or whatever the latest movie is. And I, I've thought of those things. I mean, I think they're really cool. They're they're wonderful to, to do together. But once you've done it, it's that's it. It, it seems yeah. to me in a way that it's constraining the creativity and the free play. Right. Well, the thing with, um, with those kinds of kits is another... The idea they have um, in Denmark is they base their learning on something called the zone of proximal development, which means they don't want to push their kids too hard, um, and they don't want to make it too easy. So the idea of these Lego things is, is they, they want kids to find the sweet spot of learning, so to speak, right where it's really interesting for them to go, to go further, if that makes sense. Sure. And, and so this idea with the Lego, with the constructing them, and also that you can do it with a parent or with friends, kids of all ages can find this next level of challenge for themselves. I think that's the idea behind the, those kinds of construction. Well, are those kits as popular in Denmark as they are here, do you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Denmark's Lego, <laughs> Lego crazy. A lot of Legos going on in Denmark. Um, I don't know if they're as popular as in, as in America, but um, certainly they, they like Lego. Okay. No, I just was wondering. I thought maybe, uh, maybe it's something that's just for export and the, the kids no, in Denmark no, are playing no, with no. just the regular kits. But, no, okay, so, so much for that theory. That's, uh, no, they, they actually have a school now in Denmark that they're basing on Lego. So the whole school is based on play up until middle school. Wow. And, they're and they're, there's Harvard researchers in there now that are trying to, of course, measure <laughs> play. Of course. And that's my, that's my concern is that, like, actually, the minute you try to measure it too much, you lose all of what it's actually beneficial for. Right. Exactly. All right, so let's go to the A for authenticity part. Mm -hmm. That okay. seems like a, a warm and fuzzy thing that we talk about, about being authentic and, and your, your real self and everything. But what does that really mean for, um, for you? Actually, it's just the opposite of that. Okay. <laughs> um, there's nothing. No, it's, um, it's, it's really about how Danes are very honest and direct with their kids. I mean, in a way that can be very shocking for Americans. Uh, I know when I saw some of the books my husband was reading to our daughter, I was well. My jaw dropped a couple of times, um, but Why? Danes what was going Danes on believe that kids should be exposed to all emotions. So I don't know in America when it became kind of taboo that stories couldn't have a happy ending, but it's very rare that you would find a story that doesn't have a happy ending. It's it's sort of like I said, that's like a cultural thing. In Denmark, wow, a lot of stories have really 
sad or ambiguous endings. Um, one of the examples we give is The Little Mermaid. So you know The Little Mermaid? Oh, yes. Ariel gets the prince. She lives happily ever after. But what a lot of people don't know is that's actually a Danish story. And in the original, she doesn't get the prince, but she dies of sadness and turns into sea foam. Um, so I've read both versions to my daughter. And what was interesting was that she really preferred the sad version. And it opened up for a lot of interesting discussion. Um, and what, what, what we found in the research is that by reading kids or being honest with kids about death and difficult emotions and talking about it with them, it makes them more resilient because they don't get surprised when life isn't happy ending or yeah. from the peaks and valleys. And it builds empathy because they understand all of these, these emotions. You know, I, I, I got to say that was something that I, I noticed very, very early on, and I didn't know anything about the Danish way of parenting, but really as a as a new dad, rebelled against that from the very beginning because it, it just seemed to me that y kids need to have exposure to exactly what you're saying to some of the bad stuff. And so I was reading them, the original Snow White and the original different kinds of things, and Snow White is one for those who don't know the the non-Disney story, at, at the very end, they put these uh, hot shoes on the queen and she dances herself to death or something. I mean, mm -hmm. th th there, there's some gruesome stuff going on in, in Hans Christian Andersen and other people. And, you know, if you look at some of the most popular things, though, in even now in, in American literature, children's literature, where the wild things are, there's a big chunk of that book where that involves kids getting the crap scared out of them. And... And had all the Harry Potter books and the series of unfortunate events books. I mean, there, so there, there's a little bit of an acceptance, or not a little bit. There's a getting to be wider spread acceptance that you got to have some scary stuff in there. Mm -hmm. But it's not just scary. It's um, I'll give you another example. It's uh, kind of funny. I was watching Danish TV with my daughter um, the other night, and we get Danish TV, um, and <laughs> there was this kids program on for like seven year olds. And in it, they, they save animals. So they run to the scene where this animal, this bird's been hurt, and the vet's like, oh, what are we going to do? Look, its head's been hurt. What, what, you know, how are we going to help it? And then it zooms in on the bird's eye, and, oh, it, it's died. Let's give it a funeral. Um, so this was, this was like, wow, okay. Um, so that opened up some interesting discussion with yeah. my daughter that night. And that was, that was seven-year-old TV. Um, but again, for a Dane, they're, they're, they feel like, but that happens. Animals die. Things die, you know. And it's not that they like to talk about it, but they, they're very honest about it in a very non-dramatic way. You know, Jessica, we only have just one minute left, and I just, but okay. I want you to talk about a, a story that you mentioned about your, your husband reframing uh, a discussion about spiders yes. with your daughter. T explain what that was. Um, so reframing is something that Danes do naturally, and uh, it's basically being able to find more positive details in a negative, uh, out negative seeming one. And the day I heard my husband reframing my daughter's fear of spiders, so um, she was afraid, and he got down on her level and started talking to her about um, the legs and how they build webs and how amazing spiders are, and just talked to her about how yeah how fascinating they are and it completely changed her language went from being afraid to being super curious and interested and even now she 
is really interested in spiders. And it was really in that moment that I realized this, this ability to reframe is passed on. They, they teach this skill to their children, and this is part of the reason they grew up to be happier, because the way we choose to interpret something affects the way we feel about it, and it's, it's a skill. So if our kids learn it, they grow up to do it naturally, which affects their well-being. It is a great skill, yeah, if you can do that, because uh, you know, so much of what we've got going on is, is fear-based, as you're talking about, but I mean, mm-hmm. for, from both sides of it. I mean, the kids are afraid of something, not necessarily mom and dad, yeah. Jessica Joel Alexander, the co-author of The Danish Way of Parenting, What the Happiest People in the World Know About Raising Confident, Capable Kids. Jessica, thanks for joining us. Great to have you. Thank you so much. Hey, parents, introducing the Communicizer. Go from boring old man speak. Oh, you know, I'm here if you want to talk. To 100% off the chain. Text me whatever, yo. I love you, Dad. Communicizer is not available in stores because it doesn't exist. But that's okay. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Because kids in foster care don't need perfection. They need you. For more information on how you can adopt, go to AdoptUsKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt Us Kids, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. So let's get to it. Dear Mr. Dad, we have two sons almost exactly three years apart. The oldest was a dream child in almost every way, but his little brother is pretty much the exact opposite. My husband and I find this surprising since we tried to do everything with our youngest exactly the same as we did with our oldest. Why are they so different? What you're saying seems logical, perfectly logical, in fact, but unfortunately there's very little that's logical when it comes to kids. The reality is that just like fingerprints, snowflakes, and zebra stripes, no two children are ever going to be exactly the same, even if they're raised by the same mom and same dad in the same house. While you may believe that your younger child has grown up in exact same circumstances as his older brother, he really hasn't. And if you think about this, it'll start to make sense. To start with, you and your husband are hardly the same as you were when your first baby was born. If you were like most brand new parents, you may have felt completely overwhelmed, afraid of making mistakes, panicking about every little thing, and generally not sure what to do with your baby. You probably read a ton of books and magazine articles, asked all your more experienced friends and family for their advice, and made more than a few middle-of-the-night phone calls to your pediatrician's 24-hour advice line. But ultimately, what got you through that first year or so was making mistakes, and you probably made plenty of them, just like we all do. And more important, learning from those mistakes. Three years later, when baby number two arrives, you're very different and much more confident as a parent. From day one, you instinctively applied the lessons you learned from raising your oldest, and you made a lot fewer mistakes, or at least different ones. You already knew what to do to soothe your baby. It didn't take you nearly as long to decipher his cries and his behavior. You knew whose advice to take and whose to disregard. You could already change a diaper in the dark, and you may have taken the pediatrician off the speed dial. The same applies to your husband. Even though you may be living in the same physical structure as when, you're, when you were first-time parents, it's a very different home, one where two children now live. That doesn't sound like a big change, but your oldest spent his first three years as an only child, while your youngest has always had a sibling. Since firstborns are the center of mom's and dad's universe, that's 
whom they model themselves after. They tend to adopt their parents' adult mannerisms, speech patterns, and tastes. Younger kids, however, instinctively gravitate toward their older siblings and tend to take their cues about how to act, speak, and play from them. And then, of course, there's the issue of time. Taking care of two kids takes a lot more work, and unless you've managed to clone yourself, your youngest is never going to be able to get as much one-on-one attention from mom and dad as your oldest did. That may explain why so many parents report that their oldest children are calmer and more peaceful than subsequent ones. Younger kids learn very quickly that they have to be louder and more aggressive to get anyone to pay attention to them. Given all that, how could your kids avoid being different? That doesn't mean better or worse just not the same. If you've got a question for us or a comment or a suggestion, please visit our website, mrdad.com, and drop us a line. We always respond. And while you're there, you can check out archives of this show if there happen to be any episodes that you missed, and you can find a ton more Ask Mr. Dad columns. We'll be back next week with another Ask Mr. Dad segment or a Parents at Play segment. But, you know, if you stick around for another minute, there's going to be a lot more positive parenting coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. Me, down here. <gasps> what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. Well, uh, what are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. Don't you remember me? Don't you know that we miss you? Miss me? Who misses me? You know, all your friends in the forest. The trees, the pond, that little fort that you made out of branches. We all miss you. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. Oh, I guess that makes sense. The forest is not that far away. Have an adventure today. I'm sure your mom would take you. You're right. I should get out. I want to have fun. Play in puddles, catch frogs, and climb trees. Hey, Mom! Yeah, hon? <gasps> Stephen! What is that in your hand? It's my sense of adventure, Mom. It's telling me we need to get out of the house and have some fun in nature today. Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, thanks for sticking with us. This is the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. During a decade as the dean of freshmen at Stanford University, Julie Lithcott-Hames noticed a deeply disturbing trend. Every year, more and more parents brought their kids to college and then didn't leave, making themselves instantly available virtually if not in person. Each year also brought fewer and fewer students who seemed capable of making decisions and solving problems on their own. That so many seemingly accomplished students were notably dependent on their parents left Julie concerned for the students, for their parents, and for the rest of us as well. Where will the next generation of leaders come from if everyone needs mommy and daddy to tell them what to do next? We are in big trouble. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with Julie Lithcott-Hames about her observations and interviews with parents, teens, young adults, and educators, school counselors, and employers. She'll tell us about the consequences of this kind of overparenting, which can be as benign as young adults not knowing how to do laundry and as severe as higher rates of drug addiction and anxiety and depression in young adults. 
We'll also get her take on why it's so important to allow our children to make their own mistakes so that they can develop the resilience, resourcefulness, and inner determination that's going to be necessary for them to succeed in the 21st century. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. My dad is a hero. He goes into burning buildings. He finds people inside who need to be saved. Then he helps them get out, even when he can't breathe or see, even when he's a little scared. My dad is a firefighter. He does great things, and the best thing he can do is come home. The U.S. Fire Administration, a part of FEMA, reminds you to protect the heroes who protect our lives. Have a smoke alarm on every floor. Test it monthly. Replace the battery yearly. Do your part to get out before firefighters have to come in. The fact is, 60% of all fire deaths occur in a home without a working smoke alarm. The good news is, that's a fact that can change. For more information, visit the U.S. Fire Administration at www.usfa.fema.gov. Working for a fire-safe America. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Julie Lithcott-Hames, who's the author of How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap and Prepare Your Kid for Success. Julie, thanks for joining us. Armin, thanks for having me. So you are at Stanford. I was. I left four years ago. Okay. But while you were there, you were the dean of freshmen. You had all sorts of uh, (laughs) great experiences. We're going to talk about a lot of those, I think, Um, which really led you to question the whole idea of helicopter parenting or even just what people are trying to get away with calling just attentive parenting. Um, Tell us a, a little bit about how you began to first acquire this information. Yeah. So I was dean from 2002 to 2012, and um, in, over the course of that decade, uh, three things were happening, um, major shifts. The first was um, students were somehow more and more accomplished each year than the prior year students, so that the admissions standards seemed to be going up in terms of grades and scores and stuff. Um, on the other hand, students, it, it, from one-on-one conversations, I could tell that they were somehow less and less familiar with their own selves. They could tell me what they accomplished or achieved, but not why they had chosen to do it. Um, so it seemed that their life was becoming more of a utilitarian pursuit of items for a resume or of a certain set of scores, but they seemed to be, over the years, at a greater distance from their own sense of self. And then the third trend was parents were more involved in university life and in the day-to-day life of their college-age sons or daughters. And in the aggregate, all of this um, left me asking, wait a minute, why are these 18, 19, 20, 21, 22-year-olds, because I didn't only know them as freshmen, I, I got to know them better as they age, why are they so unfamiliar with their own selves, so disinterested in kind of striking out and charting their own path, why do they seem so beholden to a parent's expectations and so reliant upon a parent to make a choice or solve a problem for them? At a meta level, it made me worry kind of what's to become of them as a generation, what's to become of us as a society if this next generation of highly capable young adults, by many measures, um, seems to be under-constructed in terms of their adult selves. Well, do you think that they are actually highly capable, or they just have put on the trappings of capability? Well, that's a very big question. What does it mean to be capable? What does it mean to be successful? And I've had to interrogate those 
those terms and concepts a bit um, as I've given thought to this issue. Um, certainly by many standard measures, they have achieved through high school. They are, you know, highly. They have done the things that um, evince um, an intellectual capacity, a drive, a perseverance. Um, but I think what we're beginning to appreciate is many kids only make it to a place as highly selective as Stanford or schools like it when they have been helped tremendously by a set of parents who've been there to plan out every activity, to hover over every piece of homework, to argue with teachers about grades, to argue with coaches about playing time. They've been, many of them have been highly attended in childhood such that they're able to kind of achieve these incredibly high uh, measures of success. So, you know, I, I think it's actually an open question. Will they be able to um, get a job, hold a job, please a boss, uh, get promoted, weather the, um, the blows that come in life without a parent or two standing by to tell them how to handle things. I think that's, that's the open question, and that's essentially why I wrote this book. Well, and it starts way before high school, though. I remember it, being a parent who was pretty involved in all of my kids' uh, classrooms, as, as far as I could anyway, before they stopped having parents in the classrooms. But my youngest, when she was in third grade, I was helping grade papers, that the little essays that the kids had done. And there were every once in a while, one kid in particular would have these absolutely beautifully written things <laughs> that were clearly written by an adult. Right. And you wonder, what is this? Hel how is this helping the kid? I mean, she's not. She's you know, the parent has already done the third grade, hopefully, right. and you don't need to do it again. And so, th and th that's kind of why I was asking about whether really and truly they are as accomplished as they yeah. seem on paper. Well, I, I guess, guess the SATs if, or something like that, a standardized test, you generally have to go in there and do something on your own. But grades seem to be less and less uh, an indication of anything real. Well, you're absolutely right. To the point of SATs, of course, the more you can afford to prep for it, the more you can afford to retake it, the higher your scores go. So, um, you know, we delude ourselves in thinking that somehow that's a measure of raw intelligence. As for grades, you've hit the nail on the head, and, and I've traveled. Look, my book has been out for 14 months. Um, I've been all over the country, and I hear this everywhere I go, Armin. Parents admit that they're doing their kids' homework. Why? Because they perceive that other parents are doing their kids' homework, and they know <laughs> if I stop helping my third grader with that essay, then she'll be competing with everyone else's parents. Okay, parents know that, and... So we're at this point of realizing, now why are parents doing it? Because they know that help equals a better grade. So there's a short-term win, and we all love our kids, and we all want to help our kids, and we've gotten misguided in our thinking. We think that doing their homework, helping them get the better grade, prepares them for success. All it does is show them, hey, kid, you can't be a third grader without your parents' interference. You can't be successful without your parent. You'll always need your parent. It's unethical, and teachers don't have a clue what, what the kids in their classroom actually know when we overhelp. So it's problematic by every measure, um, and it's, it contributes long-term to a poor quality of mental health for our kids because well, they've essentially been undermined in the living of yeah. life by themselves. Well, I think part of it has to do with the fact that we're using the, a misguided definition of the word help. That yeah. help would be... Now, what do you think about that? Or let, let's talk about the, the rules that are going on here. Or here's how you might think about a different math problem. That, it, helping, at least in my view, in many ways, seems to be to encourage them to think differently or to think it, come at a problem from a different angle, not, well, you can't do it, so I'll do it for you. That's not help. Absolutely. And when I'm talking to parent audiences, when we get to the Q&A, we get to the nitty-gritty of this, where, where 
we end up talking about wouldn't it be great if your kid's elementary school and my kid's high school you know, was to issue a, um, a directive, a guidance, a piece of guidance at the beginning of the year at Back to School Night if they would you know, take a piece of paper and draw a line down the middle and on one side say this is um, the appropriate type of help at this grade level from a parent and then draw the line. On the other side of the line is this is inappropriate you know, examples of inappropriate help. In other words, parents need guidance. They look around and they say, well, that dad is practically outright doing the science experiment. I guess I need to do that, too. I need to stay up all night with the glue gun for the California Mission Project because that's what so-and-so's parent down the street is doing. We need guidance in how to pull back and actually implement the appropriate type of help that you've just begun to articulate. And we need the schools to enforce it. We need schools to say, when you cross the line, you're undermining the teacher-student relationship. It's unethical. Please don't. And if we see that you're doing it, we're going to dock your kids' grade. I mean, we need the schools, instead of, to, of coddling and encouraging this you know, unethical parental behavior, the schools need to be brave enough to stand up and say, uh-uh, nah, that, we're not doing it that way anymore. You know, so it seems like there's two different things going on at the same time. There's the well-intentioned... I think genuine, it comes from a good place, to wanting your kids to succeed and yeah. wanting to give them all of the resources that they need to succeed. And then later on, when you get to college, there's an a, a sort of a, a bizarre refusing to let go. I mean, it seems like one of the definitions of good parenting might be preparing your kid to take off on, on his or her own. And it seems like, and then we'll go, I want to talk about this in our second segment a little bit more, but some of the things that you were seeing as the dean of students, where parents are not letting go. And, and there's that. That is one of the biggest components about why you called the book How to Raise an Adult. Yeah. I mean, I think for the first half of my deanship, or the first third, I just was dismayed by um, the fact that every year we seem to have more parents who thought they had the right to pick up the phone and say, I disagree with the grade my child got in this biology class. I mean, there was a moment not that long ago when that sort of phone call from a parent would have been absurd. And nowadays, at campuses across the nation, not just the Stanfords of of the world, it's quite commonplace for parents to think, just as they've always argued with teachers and coaches K through 12, they think it's appropriate to keep doing that in college. I remember when that was absurd, and I watched it become more and more the norm. And here's the point. If you've been holding on tightly to your kid throughout throughout childhood, You can't simply let go when they get to college because they need you. They think they need you. They might actually need you. You need them. You need that codependent role you've been playing in their life. It's this terribly unhealthy intertwinedness, and it would feel cruel, though, to let go when your kid is now at the, you know, precipice of college. So the point is, as you said, you know, one of the definitions of being an adult is or being a successful parent is put yourself out of a job. Our job as parents isn't to create a dependency that lasts for the rest of our lives. It's to raise kids to the point where they can be independent of us and can fend without us. And that's what we've forgotten. Talking with Julie Lithcott-Hames, who's the author of How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap and Prepare Your Kid for Success. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to keep talking to Julie about some of the stories that she saw in the trenches of being the dean uh, Stanford University. I'm Armin Brott, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Excuse me, do you know how to get to Maine and Maple? How's that cook? How do you change the ringtone? How much does this cost? Does this bus stop at Elm Street? We ask questions everywhere in life, except... Any questions? Um, no. At the doctor's office. 
Ask questions. What is this test for? Are there any side effects? Questions lead to better health care. Go to ahrq.gov for a list of 10 questions everyone should know. Questions are the answer. Public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, talking with Julie Lithcott-Hames, who's the author of How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap, and Prepare Your Kid for Success. So I remember hearing stories from people about parents going to job interviews with their kids, which is something that's typically happening after college or shouldn't be happening at all, but when it's happening, it's happening after college. Did you have kids uh, coming in or parents coming in to talk to you with their kids in tow? Yeah. So, um, you know, to get from the kind of high-level concern that I had to the specifics, here's an example, and it's right in, in line with what you've just said. So um, it became more and more common for parents to feel they had to be the ones to gather information and hold on to it and remind their kid of it, their college-age kid. For example, I would get an email from a parent saying, we're bringing our son to Stanford for freshman orientation next week. Um, He wants to get involved in research at Stanford. We'd like to meet with you to talk about that. So I'd reply saying, happy to meet with you. Don't forget to bring your kid and, you know, set up an appointment. And then the three of them, two parents and a kid, would be in my office, and let's say the dad would start talking, you know, well, Johnny wants to do research here. And I'd smile, look at Johnny in the eye, big smile, hi, Johnny, great, great to hear it. Tell me more about your interests so I can um, figure out how to get you plugged in most effectively here at Stanford. Johnny would smile, shrug his shoulders, look over to his dad, who would then start to tell me more about what Johnny had done to date in the realm of research or science or whatever the field was. And I would keep redirecting my eye contact to Johnny to signal, hey, kid, you're in college now. They're going to go home, we hope. And this relationship (laughs) and connection needs to be between you and all of the faculty here who exist for the purpose of helping you acquire an undergraduate education. This isn't about what your parents think or want. This isn't about your parents advocating for you. It's on you now. And, you know, I was signaling that in a very friendly, welcoming way. Um, But this was happening over and over again. A kid so accustomed to a parent um, asking questions on their behalf, advocating for them, remembering things, they just didn't know how to do it any other way. Here's another example. Um, Got a phone call. Um, My daughter is going to be studying, my junior, my daughter who's a junior in college is going to be studying abroad next term in, you know, pick a country, South Africa, France, Germany. When is your parent orientation for study abroad? You know, and I found myself like shaking my head. I have my my hand on my forehead right now as I tell you this. Like, wait a minute, this young person we're talking about is 20. She could be in the army right now and be going to Germany with the U.S. Army, but instead she's going to go to Germany with Stanford University. Why is it that you feel, parent, that you need to gather the information to prepare her for that? Why do you not trust your daughter? Why don't you think the university can can sort of equip her to make this trip? Like, what is going on? You know, I'm curious. I, I would imagine that when you were the dean of students, you freshman, were— Freshman, just freshman. Just freshman. Well, <laughs> close enough. Uh, th- that you were involved in organizations where you would be having contact with other people in similar situations at, at other colleges. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we all know Stanford, Harvard, the, the Ivy League schools are not 
typical of of college education overall, I would imagine. Well, Were you finding this that the same thing is going on at less selective, less competitive colleges? This was happening uh, over the course of the last decade. This topic of parental involvement in the life of the university, in its systems and um, administration and bureaucracy, kind of advocating for sons and daughters, this was happening at four-year schools in every tier. Okay, how do I know? Because we would go to conferences with one another. We would have conversations with one another. We're reading what's what's being published in um, the literature within academia. You know, increasingly, it was dawning on administrators and faculty that things are changing on our campus. Our students don't seem to be able to come and approach us with a concern. They need their parent to do that for them. You know, our, our students don't seem to be able to register for classes on their own. The parent says, I need the kid's password. I need to do it for them. It's too hard for them or they're too busy. We were all noticing it. And the conversation among us moved from occasional to regular, meaning at our conferences, it became like the bigger and bigger topic. What do we do about parents who are essentially encroaching upon the relationship that a university or college faculty and administration have with students and have always had with students? Um, I'll tell you where we didn't, where I didn't hear this happening and where I would often get pushback when I would raise this issue, community colleges. And as I sat with that distinction, it made sense to me. Who tends to be the bulk of the population at a community college? What we call non-traditional college students. Older, maybe they have a child, maybe they're supporting their family, maybe they're going to school in the evenings because they're working a, a full-time job. You know, for all kinds of reasons, folks like I've just described have a stronger sense of self, a uh, stronger sense that I'm in charge of what, what happens to me and yeah. I need to make my own way. It's this sort of wonderful irony about a uh, a sense of self and maybe a, a grit, a resilience, a perseverance that may come if you are um, less affluent, um, less supported by family, and so on. It's it's a beautiful irony that kids, yeah. you know, at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum or who have had less in life might be better equipped, if they can get to mm. college, might be better equipped to thrive on their own there. I'm wondering if you had the same experience or you found that the kids who were in military academies, Annapolis or West Point or the Air Force Academy, for example, whether they were more likely to be on their own and, and less involved. I, I can't imagine a colonel t taking a call from a parent and, and having anything to do except hanging up the phone. Armin, I interviewed colonels at West Point for my book because I wanted to ask that very question. And what I heard from a couple of them is even at West Point, the preparedness of cadets has been impacted by this over-involvement of parents in childhood. So West Point is hearing much more frequently these days from a parent, you know, why are you, my, my child's roommate is gone for the weekend. I understand you won't let him sleep alone. You have a policy against that. What is that about? Why are you doing that? You know, um, instead of accepting that West Point has a policy and that's their policy, um, uh, students are more likely to break down in emotionally, more likely to be in tears. Um, um, students are, are needing parents to accompany them to their first assignment, say Fort Bragg. You know, a parent is going to go make sure the kid gets an apartment. Um, and, and these colonels at West Point, I interviewed two of them, are like I am, shaking their head like, how did we get to this? 
why do parents have so little faith that their offspring have any capacity <laughs> to function in the world? So, yeah. And this is what makes me ask at the meta level, what's to become of us as a society? Who are we talking about? We're talking about millennials. Yeah. They're an incredible generation of young people who want a chance to make their way like any generation has. But some of them, too many of them, have been overparented, so they reach chronological adulthood and don't have a sense of how to fend for themselves exactly. over the course of a day. Yeah. And we should all be worried about that. Well, you know, we only have about a couple of minutes left, but I want you to talk specifically about that for just a, just a little bit, about the, the downside of this, what's happening. And you're talking about the kids not being chronologically prepared. I mean... Yeah. that's going to affect, it seems like, much more than that. I mean, yeah. think about it in, in a global right. scale. We're not going to be competitive if right. you've got people who can't be engineers without calling up mom and dad. Uh, right. So there are three main impacts. The first is they seem to lack life skills, just the sort of get yourself up, get yourself fed, get yourself out the door with your work in your bag and get to wherever you're supposed to be, again, on their own without kind of a parent um, telling them what to do or how to do it. They lack workplace preparedness because they're accustomed to being told what to do by their parents, and so now they expect a boss to be very specific about what to do at every turn instead of being able to kind of think a few steps ahead and anticipate what the boss might need, all right? And then number three, their mental health is impacted. They suffer from soaring rates of anxiety and depression as a generation, and increasingly research is showing a link between being overparented and having higher rates of anxiety and depression. So we are harming them every which way, which is so paradoxical because we adore them. We've just lost sight of the fact that they're not little bonsai trees for us to clip and prune to resemble an ideal shape of a human. They actually need to become a human, and a human becomes a human by doing the work of life, by struggling a bit, learning from it, picking themselves up, and moving on. You know, I think that just that last little bit that you said is something that probably every parent, if he or she heard it out of context, would say, well, of course. We're not doing it. Right. And Armin, I'm a parent too. I haven't said that yet, but I got two teenagers. And I wrote this book because I was, at, at, in the beginning, I was a critical university dean saying, what the heck is going on? And then I realized with my eight and 10 year old that, you know, I was cutting my 10 year old son's meat. And I realized, <laughs> oh God, I'm going to be one of those parents of an 18 year old who can't let go because how can I possibly let go of this boy if I'm still cutting his meat? You know, and that's when I became this compassionate, dean slash parent slash human who said, wait a minute, we with the best of intentions are undermining our kids' chance to become independent. And for their sake and for the sake of us all globally, societally, you know, we've got to pull back, you know, take the long view, parent for the long view, let them struggle, let them do more for themselves with confidence that that's how they build a healthy whole self. Julie Lithcott Haynes is the author of How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap, and Prepare Your Kid for Success. Julie, thanks so much. Great to have you. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.